The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond. History Month Convocation Series. My name is Amira Lottison. I'm a senior biology major with an Africana Studies minor on the pre-med track. I am the co-president of our African and Caribbean Association, on the board for our pre-health association, and a student career assistant at the Career Center. I would like to take the time today to introduce today's convo speaker, Ben Rains. As someone who's always excited to learn about African-American history and its richness from past to present, Ben Raines provides the perfect opportunity doing, to do so, given his extensive knowledge and experience. Ben graduated from New York University Tisch School of Arts with a filmmaking degree and is a U.S. Coastal Guard licensed captain. On one of his many escapades, he discovered the wreck of Coltilda, the last ship carrying enslaved Africans to arrive in the United States in 2018. His new book, The Last Slave Ship, the true story of how Coltilda was found, her descendants, an Extraordinary Reckoning was published on January 25th, 2022. Reigns is also a journalist who has won a dozen of awards for his coverage of environmental issues and has appeared on media outlets such as CNN, The Today Show, Good Morning America, and NBC Nightly News. Let's just say he's pretty big time. He wrote and directed The Underwater Forest, an award-winning film about the exploration of a 70,000-year-old cypress forest found off the Alabama coast. Roll Tide! <laughs> I could rant on and on about how cool and accomplished we know Ben Reigns to be, but I'll save that for another day. So let's take this time to please welcome to the stage, and of course, Carlton College, Ben Reigns. <laughs> Well, introduced by a biology major, I love it. Uh, I am a, what you might call a failed marine biology major. Um, I hit organic chemistry and, and you see I went to film school, uh, so I changed course. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to talk um, about, uh, well, the last slave ship. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about why it's important. And it's important because of the people you see on the screen behind me. Um, th this story is unique in history because we get to hear what happened to Africans who were stolen from Africa and brought through the Middle Passage and enslaved from their own mouths. In the historical record, there's almost nothing like this uh, because when people were being brought here, nobody was writing down their stories. But this happened very late. This happened in 1860. So by 1860, almost all the enslaved people in America had been born in America because it had been illegal since 1808 to import people. Uh, that was a law Thomas Jefferson passed. So with these people who were from 12 to 30 when they were captured in 1860, they lived a long time after uh, the end of slavery. They were enslaved for five years and freed at the end of the war. So Cujo, who's the guy over here, is the most famous of the captives. He lived, uh, he was the last one still alive, and he died in 1935, was interviewed dozens of times, including by Zora Neale Hurston for her book Barracoon where he told his first-person account. So uh, the, 
these other folks were interviewed many times too. A total of 11 of them were interviewed for the first time in the most important book, uh, which was in 1911. And so we have the stories of 11 people who went through the things I described. So for most people whose ancestors arrived in the country in the hold of a ship, they're lucky if they know the name of the plantation uh, where their ancestors were enslaved. Their history, they can't go back any further than that. You know, 23andMe and all that stuff, they don't have those records. And so the story of the Clotilda and these people becomes a proxy story, sort of the origin story, for anyone whose ancestors arrived in the Americas in the hold of a ship. So that's why this story is important. That's why we're going to tell it, because it's a stand-in for the lost histories of millions and millions of people. So let's get going. Um, quickly, I'll, I'll, that's Cujo. In the middle is uh, Charlie Lewis, uh, who lived quite a while, and he'll be famous in the story in a minute. And then over here is Gumpa, uh, Peter Lee. You'll hear a little more about him. He was their first ruler. So the story begins, you may have heard, with a bet. Um, this man behind me is the villain of this story. And that's the, unique, the other unique thing about this story, is we have the perspective of the people who were captured and sold and of the villains behind the crime. So that's kind of unique. So Timothy Mayer, this guy behind me, uh, moved to Alabama in 1835 when the state was basically opened um, to settlement after Andrew Jackson, you know, our president, had chased all the Indians out. Uh, the Trail of Tears you've heard about, those were actually Indians from Alabama who were forced to move to Oklahoma. Um, so that's, you know, this fellow moved in as a young man. He worked as a deckhand on a steamboat. By the time of the Clotilda story in 1860, he and his brothers owned a shipyard, a lumber mill, three plantations, and nine steamboats. And so they were the people who moved cotton up and down the rivers and were some of the wealthiest people in America by, by this time, 1860. So Timothy Mayer, the reason he made this bet was all about thumbing his nose at the government. He was on board the steamboat one night after dinner, and you know, think antebellum, gone with the wind, velvet, you know, the steamboat, the conditions for the white passengers were very uh, plush. So after dinner, they go out to drink whiskey on the deck of the boat, the men, and smoke cigars. And they're talking about the news of the day. The news of the day was a story about a ship called the Wanderer. The Wanderer had snuck into Georgia with 378 captives on board to enslave them. And the guy doing it uh, was, a, was broke. He was doing it to try and make money as opposed to Timothy Mayer, who was just snubbing his nose at the government. So the Wanderer folks get arrested, and there's a court trial going on, and it was big news all over the country. The trial's going on in Georgia, but the New York Times was covering it, the New York Tribune is covering it. There's stories in papers all over the country about this trial. And we know some of this because the guy behind it all, Charles Augustus Lafayette Lamar, uh, who sent the ship to Africa, actually during court challenged a Navy admiral to a duel. And they, they adjourned court, they went out in the street, and they shot at each other, but both missed. Um, but then he challenged the editor of the New York Times and the editor of the New York Tribune to duels. They didn't take him up on it, um, despite hearing he was a bad shot. So they're talking about the Wanderer on the ship, and there's some Yankee passengers on Mayor's boat. And so one of them says, well, I think they should hang the lot of them, meaning all the people behind the Wanderer, to scare anybody else off from doing this. Timothy says, nonsense, they'll hang nobody. I could do it myself in a year. And he bets $1,000, which is 30,000 in today's money, that he could do this. 
So he immediately sets about doing it. As soon as he gets home, he talks to his next door neighbor, who is this guy. This is Captain Foster. Captain Foster is who actually sailed the ship to Africa and made the transactions to buy the people on the Clotilda. Um, so Foster was living in a rooming house at the time. What Mayor was asking him to do was to become a pirate because it was a hanging crime to get caught transporting uh, people. Now, when Timothy said, nonsense, nobody will be hung, he kind of knew he was making a safe bet because every president from Thomas Jefferson, who passed the law making it illegal to import people to enslave them, to the next nine presidents, every one of them up to Lincoln, pardoned convicted slavers, people caught red-handed with loads of, of captives on their boats. They all pardoned them because they all owned enslaved people and they couldn't see putting somebody to death for something they basically were doing. Lincoln was the first person to hang somebody, actually, and the person he hung was caught two weeks before the Clotilda made it back to America, um, which figures into the story in a, in a moment, um, as we'll talk about it. So Mayor tells Foster, I'm going to give you $35,000, which is about a half million dollars, and 10 of the captives when we get back, which is about another half million dollars, because at the time in Mobile, you could buy a human being for about $2,000. Now, this was about four times more than you would pay in the northern slave states, Maryland, Virginia. Um, but getting 10 of the captives was equivalent of another half million dollars. So Foster was doing this to become basically a millionaire. So Foster had built the fastest ship in Mobile, and one of the fastest ships in the Gulf is the Clotilda. Now, this is not actually it, but this is what it looked like. It was a two-masted schooner. Um, Foster was an excellent shipwright. He was not a very good captain. Um, a lot of what you're going to hear comes from the words of the Africans, but also Foster's journal, which he wrote. And I'll talk a little more about that in the end, because it helps find the ship. Um, but he <laughs> crashed the ship multiple times on the way to Africa. Um, they almost sank in a hurricane. They had to pull into a port to repair because the rudder had almost been knocked off. When they get the repairs done, He's driving the ship out of the harbor, and this is an 87-foot-long sailing ship, and he crashes into a British ship in the anti-slaving squadron and actually rips the boom and sail off the ship accidentally. And he writes in there, I was sure that cannon shot was going to come after us, but it didn't, so they got away. Um, so, you know, if you're, a, if you're a boat captain and I'm a boat captain, you crash into other boats, you're not a very good boat captain. So... They have to decide where to go. Well, coincidentally, the Mobile newspaper, uh, which is no longer really in existence, was the longest running paper in, in the South, uh, 180 years, and no longer prints. I worked for it for many years, so that's <laughs> a little personal dig at them. Uh, ran an article in 1860 saying, um, this guy, King Gizu, is back in the business of selling people. And he had been uh, Dahomey. He was the king of Dahomey. Dahomey was one of the most infamous uh, regimes in world history, one of the most ruthless for sure. Historians say that Dahomey was responsible for capturing and selling about a third of all people who were enslaved from Africa. So we're talking about you know, millions of people, about four million people. The way to think of Dahomey today, um, it's in modern day Benin. So Benin is about the size of Minnesota, since we're here in Minnesota. Dahomey would have, as a kingdom, would have been about the size of Minneapolis. And it spent 300 years raiding villages around the rest of Minnesota and capturing all those people. And so people were terrified of them, lived in fear of them. 
um, they were uh, particularly aggressive. When they went on a slaving raid, they marched with an army 50,000 strong. The British and the French regarded them as the most fearsome military presence in Africa. So that's where they decided to sail, because you could buy a person in Dahomey for $60, and they were selling in Mobile for $2,000. So you could see the math of the, of the trip there. But notice how, how the king is dressed. He's in beautiful silks. Um, look at the jaunty hat with the tassels, the matching tassels on the umbrella. He's also holding a hatchet, which tells you a little something about um, his demeanor. So this is his son. By the time Captain Foster arrives, uh, Gizu is dead, and his son Glele is in charge. And so this is who they um, interacted with. This is the man who captured everybody who was on the Clotilda. Um, and so this is one of the most unusual aspects of the Dahomans. This is a woman, and you notice she's conspicuously holding both a gun and a human head. This is one of the warrior women of Dahomey. They call them the Amazon women. You've seen these women before. The warrior women of Wakanda, Black Panther, were modeled on them. And more recently, the, the movie The Woman King, um, The Woman King was modeled on these women. Now, The Woman King casts these women as, as heroes, um, which is akin to if you made a movie about the Holocaust and you made Hitler the hero. Uh, and I'll explain more. The movie was Oh, I do have a picture of it here, of her. The movie was wildly inaccurate. So what these women did, when they raided a village, the male warriors would surround the kingdom or the village. These were usually fortified, walled kingdoms. You notice there are actually tall uh, logs dug in the ground behind her. You know, she's in a fort. Um, the men would surround the village, covering all the gates. The women would climb over the walls with ladders in the dead of night. They always did surprise attacks. They would spread out all over the village, and on a signal, they would all start dragging people out of their houses and cutting their heads off. When the Dahomans attacked, if you were below the age of 12 or over the age of 30, they killed you. They left nobody behind in the villages they attacked because they didn't want anybody coming after them for revenge. So surrounding Dahomey, there was this ever-growing ring of ghost towns. Um, and this was a, you know, a big deal, um, such a big deal that we have some hints of it today. Uh, this is the village of Gandhi, the floating village of Gandhi. In 1704, the Tofinu tribe was afraid they were going to get attacked by the Dahomans. So they moved down into the middle of Lake Gandhi, or Lake Nakui, uh, and built their village there on top of um, stilts. So today, there are 50,000 people who live out there in the Tofinu tribe. They're still out there five miles from shore. The reason they move to the middle of the lake is because the Dahomans won't cross water before battle. The Dahomans won't cross wa water before battle because um, their native religion, which is called Vodun, and that's the parent of what we call voodoo here. You know, voodoo came from this region of Benin, which is next to Nigeria, Ivory Coast, Togo. Um, that's where we get voodoo from in, in the Americas. So one of the tenets of it was one of their main uh, gods was a sea serpent. And so they would never cross water before battle. And so the Tofino used this. There are also in Benin a thousand underground villages dating back from that era where people dug caves in the earth. They would come out and farm in the daytime and at night they would disappear into these hidden apartments underground. More than a thousand of them. So this is Gonbi. We're going to take a quick look at, at a little bit of Gonbi. Um, as I mentioned, there are 50,000 people. The place on... This side of the image is actually a hotel and a bar. Um, this is a little drone shot, so you can 
just get a little flavor of it. Um, it's one of the most fascinating places I've ever been. They call themselves the Venice of West Africa. Um, it's really extraordinary. This is the school. They built an island so the kids would have somewhere to play soccer and stuff like that. That big boat is the school bus, or one of them. Um, here you can see the kids in their uniforms. Uh, this is a little five-year-old boy paddling this 30-foot-long canoe. The whole community today um, subsists on aquaculture. They grow fish in pens all around their houses and all around the community. I mean, it's quite a fascinating thing. They have huge fish markets um, where they sell the fish to, to you know, the people living on land. But back to Cujo. So this is him as an old man. Um, this is uh, where he ended up living um, in, in Africa town, which we're going to talk a little more about. He's sitting on the steps of his cabin here. He's 87 years old. Um, this is one of the only pictures of an African who was enslaved. Uh, most of the pictures we have of surviving slaves were people born in America. There's actually film footage of Cujo chopping wood, um, and it's the only, there's, there's footage of him and one other woman from the Clotilda. Uh, and that's the only footage we have of any Africans who were enslaved. And it's silent footage. So Cujo, um, his village gets attacked, and he always talked about the secrets of the gates. At his house, where he was sitting, he, had a, a, he built a fence all the way around his two-acre property, and he put eight gates in it, because that was the secret of his village. It had eight gates. So if the marauders came to the main gate and started trying to bang it down to attack, all the people would run out the other secret gates. But a traitor had told the Dahomans about the other gates. So Cujo wakes up in the night, he sees his neighbor's head being cut off, um, he sees blood everywhere, he tries to run out one of the gates, he runs into the, the arms of the men who are out there. He cries to them and says he has to go find his mother, and he says, uh, but they've got no ears for crying, and they tied him up. Um, Cujo's mother was almost certainly killed. Uh, he and the other captives spent a month together in a, a barracoon, which is a Spanish word for it's a slave prison. Um, and his mother, none of his family were among the people there. So um, he witnesses this horrible thing. The reason that the Amazon warrior woman was holding the head, in Dahomey culture, you were not allowed to brag about how many people you killed unless you had their heads. So Cujo in Barracoon actually describes just a, a grotesque scene where they've been marching for three days and all the soldiers carrying heads on ropes um, stop and make a huge fire and they smoke the heads. So if you can imagine, you're, you've just been captured, you've seen your family killed, and then you're witnessing this. Um, when they arrived at the palace walls, this is the palace where he was taken. When they arrived there, the clay walls of the fort surrounding the palace had human bones stuck in them and skulls at regular intervals all the way around. I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. It's just incredible, the, the, the depravity. So this was the palace. It's still there today um, where they brought all the captives. This was to the capital, Abome, which was set back from the water. The slave port was Ouida. That's where Captain Foster was sailing to. Um, and it was set back so that the slaving nations, Britain and Spain, and all, couldn't attack um, the king. So he was, you know, 60 miles from the water. Um, this is an image in here because the Dahomans, uh, the, which today is today's Bon tribe, do a lot of facial scarifications, and this is the typical pattern here and here. Um, and so even today in Benin, you can tell what tribe people are from by the facial scarifications. And so, you know, people can look and know, oh, you were the tribe that captured everybody, or oh, you were one of the tribes that got captured. Uh, and the government has done a lot of work to try and um, 
deal with those rifts because they're having, just like we're talking about reparations and, and things here, they have a similar discussion going on there. Uh, I would say they've done a better job addressing it in Benin, and I'll explain that in a little bit in a minute. This is the old slave route. And so Cujo and the others, after, when they went to the palace, they were um, interviewed. If they had skills, like an artist or a baker or something like that, the Dahomans would keep them and enslave them themselves. Uh, if they didn't, Cujo had trained as a warrior since he was 14. Um, you were sold and shipped away. Uh, when I was in Benin, one of the government officials said something to me. Um, she said, you know, people think um, slavery happened in Africa. No, what happened in Africa was you were taken from your land and your family and sent away forever. You know, slavery was what happened when you got somewhere. What the people in Africa did to each other, she was saying, was, was almost even worse in her mind. Um, so Cujo marched down this road, as did millions of other people, to Ouida, the capital. Um, and when they got to Ouida, they did various things. One was they made all the captives walk around this tree. It was called the Tree of Remembering. And it is actually a beautiful tree with beautiful flowers on it. Uh, they would walk them around it three times in the belief that when these people who were being sent away forever died in whatever foreign land, their souls would know how to get home to where they were from so that they wouldn't, the, 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 the ghosts wouldn't be mad at the Dahomans for sending them away, which it just sounds nuts, but uh, of course they're gonna be mad. <laughs> so this is a view of the last barracoon that's still in Ouida. Um, when Foster went, he was taken to this barracoon and he said there were 4,000 people inside waiting to be sold. So the Dahomans really industrialized slavery in a way nobody ever had before. Um, we have a journal from 1619, it's called Diary of a Dutch Slave Trader, and he writes in 1619, you could go to most slave ports and get two or three people in a week. You could go, he says, to Ouida and get a thousand people in a few hours. And, and so that's what happened. Um, so they were here for, for about three weeks. Um, Cujo tells this story, it's not in Barracoon, but it's in a newspaper account, an uh, interview I read. Um, he says that they, when Foster comes in and he picks the people he's buying, um, they take them all out, Cujo's one of them, with, along with many people from his village. They take them all out, they're all tied up together, and they have to wait by the White House while Foster is inside trading eight or 27 pounds of gold for 125 people. So while they're waiting, one of the Dahomans comes up and unties Cujo from the line of captives and hides him under the house. He pushes him under there and tells him to go under the house. So Cujo goes under the house and he sees all the feet walk away. And he realizes, oh, I'm, I could run away, I'm free. But he can hear the ocean. They could hear the ocean the whole time they were in the barracoon, but they could never see it. And he says, I want to know what, how the water makes that roar. So he climbs up and looks over a fence. He gets out from under the house, looks over a fence, and he can see the ocean. And he can see the Clotilda, the first ship he's ever seen, the first time he's ever seen the ocean. And then he can see the people that he was with down on the beach getting loaded into giant canoes to be taken out to the ship. And he sees his friend Kibi. And he says, I want to go with Kibi. So I holler out, hey, don't forget me. And so they come and get him. He could have run away, but he knew everybody in his village had been killed, most likely. And so he instead wanted to go with one of his last people that he knew. And unusually, they ended up being together for the rest of their lives, uh, which is very unusual in the story of, of enslaved people. Um, and it's one of the reasons the Clotilda story is so powerful. 
when they got to America, this is them in the hold of the ship. This is what this is an artist's rendering of, of um, how they were kept. You know, purpose-built slave ships were um, where you see the people laid out in the floor. You've seen those images of bodies stacked and everything. Um, the Clotilda was not built for that. It was an 18-wheeler, basically, of its day. It would travel from Alabama, loaded down with, with pine and oak, timber, and cotton, go to the Caribbean and Central America and trade or sell those things and come back with loads of sugar, rum, uh, oranges, bananas, and that kind of stuff. That's what it did the five years before it went to Africa. So it was a much smaller ship. So when it gets to America, one of the unusual things that happened was they couldn't take the people to a slave market because this, it was a notorious trip. So the Africans all stayed together in small groups. Um, they were spread mostly among five plantations. So Cujo was with 20 people he had been on the ship with at the plantation he was at, at, at um, James Mayer's plantation, which was one of Timothy Mayer's brothers. So they got spread to a few neighbors and Timothy Mayer's two brothers' plantations. And so Cujo worked on the steamboats and, um, that the mayors owned when he was enslaved. And so he would see all the other Africans at the other plantations. So they were able to keep up with each other. But they were also in these groups. He talked about at the um, James Mayer's plantation, um, there was uh, a, an overseer tried to whip one of the African women in the field. And all the other Africans charged him and took the whip and whipped him with it until more overseers came and chased them away. And Cujo says uh, they didn't try and whip African women anymore after that. But these guys had been trained as warriors, and here they are in a big group, right? So another thing at Timothy Mayer's house, Timothy's wife had selected one of the 12-year-old girls to be a housemaid. And so he, she had her paid cook, this woman, Aunt Polly, teaching her how to do housekeeping. And she was teaching her how to sweep. Well, of course, the girl knew how to sweep. Africans sweep their yards. And so apparently she was sweeping too vigorously for Aunt Polly. So Aunt Polly hit her, you know, knocked her in the head. And the girl lets out a piercing scream. And we hear this story from Timothy Mayer's um, house servant, uh, Noah Hart. And he says it was a blood-curdling scream. And then all these screams started coming from the fields. 25 Africans charge into the house carrying the field implements, scythes, shovels, hoes, that they were using in the field, chase Timothy Mayer's wife and Aunt Polly upstairs where they lock themselves in a bedroom. And, um, you know, the Africans are outside chanting and stuff. But, you know, they stuck together uh, and they fought back. These are the most important elements of why we know so much about them today. Um, this is, is Cujo at his well. Um, this is him with Abache, one of the other Africans that came over. Uh, the, their time after they were freed was when they created Africatown. So I mentioned how they stuck together and fought back. Um, when they were freed, they went to Timothy Mayer and said, we want you to pay for us to go back to Africa. And he said no. So then they send Cujo to go to him again and say, we want you to give us land. We had land back in Africa. We had money. We want you to give us land so we can make a start here. And he says no. So they start saving money. You know, when they were freed, uh, they began working. And the women grew gardens, uh, which they did in Africa. Women typically did the farming. And um, they would go around town and sell the vegetables. Um, and they would sell hot lunches. And I'll talk a little more about the hot lunches in a minute. And the men had various jobs. Cujo worked um, in Timothy Mayer's shingle factory, making shingles. If you've ever seen all those wooden shingle houses in Cape Cod, places like that, a lot of those houses are covered in shingles from Alabama, uh, maybe shingles that were cut at the mayor's mill. Um, 
So Cujo uh, married one of the African women, and um, they had five children. And tragically, all of them died um, before Cujo, his wife and all of his children. Uh, you can see him here in the house, and you notice that under those hats, um, you see a bunch of chairs pushed up against the wall. It's because he had nobody to sit in them, and they're all just covered in junk. Um, two of his sons were murdered. Uh, one of them was actually shot by an African-American sheriff deputy. Um, and one of his sons was imprisoned in Alabama's infamous uh, coal mine prison system where the state of Alabama leased their prisoners to the coal mines. And it was basically modern-day slavery that lasted up into the 40s. Um, but Cujo's kids all died. He spent the last 30 years of his life very lonely. Um, we know a lot of these stories because of Cujo getting hit by a train. Interestingly, <laughs> he had gone to town in his wagon to buy peas, the seeds to grow peas. And well, there's peas to plant peas. And he gets hit by this train and he's badly injured and his wagon is destroyed. And so a white woman in Mobile comes to his aid and she hears his accent and she recognizes he's African because her father employed several of the other Africans as grave diggers at his funeral home. So she calls for a doctor and gets Cujo taken to his house, sends the a doctor, you know, a, a white Mobile, Alabama doctor. This is, a, this is, is late 1800s, about 1880. Um, and then comes to visit him and brings him food and becomes very close friends with him. And she hears his story and she hears the African, the other stories. And so she's the woman. She was, um, she was a society girl. She had gone to New York for art college, you know, when, the, when she would travel, the newspaper would write, Mrs. Roach has gone to New Orleans, Mrs. Roach has gone to Paris. Um, and so she records their story. And, and um, you know, that's the most important part of the history. That's what drew Zora Neale Hurston to come back and do a whole book based on Cujo's story. So this is where I come into the story a little bit. Um, so I was the environment reporter at the Mobile paper. I had been at this point for like 16 years or so. Um, and my dealings, there was a place called Africatown. And when I moved to Mobile and I heard people talking about Africatown, I thought they were making a derogatory comment. Um, I didn't understand that it was this town the Africans had started after they were freed. And what happened is they saved up their money and then they bought land from their enslavers. And they bought parcels on this hilly little area, all kind of close together. And they built a school for their children. They built a church because the American-born blacks would often mock them for their accents and they had tattoos and chip, you know, their teeth had been filed and things by their African parents. So they wanted a place they could worship. They'd all become Christian, but away from people laughing at them. And so their town started to thrive. There were about 30 of the Africans that started the town and it quickly became a beacon drawing in American-born blacks because the Africans knew how to be free. They had been business people. They had their families, you know, Cujo was from a market town with a big thriving market. Um, they owned land, you know, they knew how to, they had trades. Um, one of them was a commercial fisherman in Africa. One of them was a furniture maker. So people start flocking to Africatown. By 1910, and, and I mean people like Booker T. Washington uh, and Zora Neale Hurston, she actually brought Langston Hughes with her to Cujo's house. And Langston, she, she was in Mobile interviewing Cujo and she sees her friend, you know, from the Harlem Renaissance, she sees her friend Langston Hughes walking down the street in Mobile. Well, he was traveling through Mobile after speaking at a college in Mississippi, doing reading poetry. And so imagine, Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston get in her little red coupe, she had a little two-seater red car, and they drive to Cujo's house and hang out with him for a day. 
Just very cool. So my involvement with Africatown was always, um, I'd go write about the paper mills there, the sewer plants, or the sewer spills there, and things like that. And I would drive by this painting on the side of the highway of a ship, and it said Clotilde. They actually had the name wrong on the painting. Um, and, and everybody in town knew that, that Mobile was where the last slave ship came in. But at that point, I didn't understand this whole story I've told you um, that it was illegal because I didn't know that. So one day a friend of mine calls me up and um, he says, I think you should look for the Clotilda. And I said, is it missing? Because I didn't know the story. Um, you know, I just thought it was where the last ship came in before the Civil War. No. So he tells me the story. Well, the story is they go to Africa. As soon as the ship left, Timothy Mayer started bragging about what he was doing to everybody in town. So much so that a few days after the ship left, there was an article in the newspaper saying that Clotilda has left for Africa for a cargo of slaves. We wish them good luck. And so when the ship comes back, by the time the ship comes back, the federal marshals associated with the district court are watching Timothy Mayer's house. And he sees them out there. He knows they're watching it. So he was supposed to, the original plan was the Clotilda was going to come back. Timothy was going to have a lookout on the coast watching for it. When the lookout told him they were there, he was going to come down in a steamboat, take all the captives off, and the Clotilda was going to go to Mexico and get cleaned up because a slave ship was a horrible, stinking thing. It was going to get cleaned up and come back with a load of bananas or something to pretend it had a legitimate cargo. But the heat was on because Timothy had been bragging so much. So when the ship gets there, um, Timothy tells Captain Foster, look, we're burning the Clotilda. We're going to pretend this never happened. Um, and Foster is angry because it's his ship. And so he's losing something worth about a half million dollars. But Timothy says, no, no, I'm telling you, the heat is on. So that's what happened. They sailed the ship in the dark of night. They towed it behind a steamboat. They cut the masts off to make it look um, more discreet. They towed up Mobile Bay into this giant swamp. So one of the largest wetland complexes in America it sits on top of Mobile Bay. Um, and it's, I call it, I've named it America's Amazon. Um, it's the most diverse river system in North America. It's also um, the third biggest American river system after the Mississippi and the Columbia. So it's a huge network of rivers and islands and things. You're looking at a piece of it here. Uh, so they take the ship up into the swamp and burn it. And so when my friend calls me, he tells me all this. And I say, so you want me to look for a ship that's been missing for 160 years in a quarter of a million acre swamp that people have been looking for since the day it disappeared? And he said, yeah. And I said, that's crazy. That's like looking for pirate treasure. And he says, I don't know, you do those tours up there. I'm a charter captain and take people in my boat in the swamp to show them nature and stuff. And he's like, I just think you might find it. I think you should try. And I just said, that's nuts, Jeff. I'll talk to you later. And hung up and, of course, typed Clotilda into Google immediately, ordered all the relevant history books, read everything online I could find. I was hooked the second he said it. Um, and so that was in August. And um, so I... Uh, found a clue doing my research. I did all this historical research and I was in the Mobile Library where I discovered they had Captain Foster's journal from his time taking the ship to Africa. Um, and the journal was there actually because one of Timothy Mayer's descendants tried to sell, well the Captain Foster's descendants tried to sell a desk, the clock, and a chair that were in the Clotilda to one of Timothy Mayer's descendants. She wanted $18,000 for these artifacts and she had this journal. And so the mayor guy said, I don't want the furniture, but let's take that journal to City Hall. We should give this to the city of Mobile. It's history. Let's do that. And she agreed. 
So everybody who's written histories of Clotilda has, has after 2004 or five, has, has seen this journal. And it's where I found, it tells you where the ship is burned. But everybody ignored that part, I guess because they weren't looking for the ship. Now, I didn't underline the red here, but um, somebody else did. But he says, um, I sailed my schooner up the Spanish River into the Alabama River at 12 Mile Island. I transferred my slaves to a river steamboat and sent them into the cane break to hide them until further disposal. I then burned my schooner to the water's edge and sunk her. So 12 Mile Island is right in the center of this image. It's that kind of diamond-shaped island. And I knew where it was because I fished there a lot. And so when I read 12 Mile Island, I was like, well, I know right where that is. So nobody, uh, people have been looking for the Clotilda, as I mentioned, for 160 years. A man in the 2000s spent tens of thousands of dollars looking for it. Timothy Mayer had been interviewed many, many times between 1860 and his death in 1892. So many times that when he died, the New York Times wrote an obit about it. You know, a guy in Mobile, Alabama, calling him the last slaver which really irritated Foster because Timothy had gotten all the publicity. And that's why Foster uh, wrote this journal. This is a copied over version of his original journal with more details. Um, and he, it was called The Last Slaver and it never mentions Timothy Mayer once because he was trying to get the credit back for, for this journey. So Foster, Mayer had been interviewed all these times and in all these interviews he tells the story about the Clotilda and burning it and he tells different locations where he burned it. So as an old investigative reporter, the first time you have a source tell you a lie and you catch them, you know they're a liar. And so you disregard whatever they say. It's not the truth. So I wiped Timothy's stories out of my brain. Um, well, another clue that I had with that was the guy in the 2000s who spent tens of thousands of dollars looking for the ship with modern survey equipment. He went to all the places Timothy Mayer said they burned the ship, and he never found it. He, he started his search at the northern tip of 12 Mile Island, but didn't look around 12 Mile Island. So I went straight to 12 Mile Island. I, this is 12 Mile Island. I went on a very low uh, water day, uh, like this, and I found a ship. In fact, I found this ship. Um, and I uh, brought archaeologists to it, and um, they said this may be the Clotilla. So I published a story. Uh, wreck found by reporter, maybe the last slave ship. It went viral internationally. I was interviewed by media outlets from all over the world the day that story broke. Um, I know how viral because of this man here. This was the ambassador of Benin, the man in the middle, Hector Posset. And he, two days after the article, was in Mobile seeking me out because the president of Benin had told him to come here and look for and get me to take him to the site so he could do a Vodun ceremony at the site and ask the ancestors to forgive them for selling it. So I took him up to the site and he actually did this ceremony where he drank, uh, he had a bottle of gin and he took a big swig of it. And I thought, well, I guess we're going to have a party. But he spews it in the water and then he starts talking very forcefully at the water and he's speaking fond. And so I can't understand him. Uh, and so he then is yelling at the water and then he's crying. And then he has to be taken away because he's so sad. So that night at dinner, I asked him what happened up there. And he said, my father was a prince of Dahomey. I am a direct descendant of King Glele, who sold the people on the Clotilda. My mother was Yoruba, like Cujo. My father's people captured my mother's people and sold them. So I was begging my mother's people to forgive my father's people. And that's that internal battle I was talking about in Benin, right here in this one man. So... Um, 
time goes by and a fleet of archaeologists come to town to investigate my ship. This is about two months later. And they figure out that it is not the Clotilda. Uh, so I had to write this article. Um, and uh, there, we're at a meeting where they're telling the, the town, you know, the people in Africa town were very excited that the ship had been, been found because people had been calling them liars, saying this never happened, there's no ship, you made all this stuff up. So um, we're in the meeting, and their archaeologists are explaining all the ways the Clotilda is not, the, my ship is not the Clotilda. So the meeting ends, people are crying, you know, I get up, I leave, I'm thinking, I am never going to look for the Clotilda again, I'm going to go home and drink whiskey. And outside, one of the uh, descendants comes up to me, this woman, Thelma Mabin Owens, who runs the community garden, and gives me a big hug and sings a gospel song in my ear. There's a bright side somewhere, don't stop until you find it. And then she holds me by the shoulders and says, don't give up, and keep looking for it. Nobody else is looking for it. Keep looking. And I turn away from her, and two marine archaeologists come up to me and tell me they think I'm on the right track, that Timothy Mayer was lying in all those interviews. They had been hired by the state of Alabama to look in the Mobile River for two ironclad Confederate battleships that were intentionally sunk because the city wants to put them on display. So um, they, were, they, they found them the first day because they were right where they were supposed to be, in the river where they were supposed to have been sunk. Uh, they were intentionally sunk. So they had four more days of ship time. So they said, we searched everywhere in the Mobile River from uh, the port of Mobile to the southern tip of 12 Mile Island. And they used modern survey equipment, which includes a side scan sonar that looks under the, um, uh, looks at what's on the bottom, a sub-bottom profiler that looks for things buried in the mud, and a magnetometer that looks for metal, because these old ships had a lot of metal. And um, so, they, so right then I knew what I was gonna do. The guy in the 2000s had looked everywhere north of 12 Mile. These guys had looked everywhere south, but nobody had ever looked right where the captain said the ship was. And I had another clue. Cujo, in an interview in his 90s, also said 12 Mile Island. Now, he wouldn't have known when he was, got off the boat that night, but one of the mayors, uh, the mayors enslaved a Cherokee Indian named James Dennison, and they had taught him to drive steamboats. So the night the Clotilda came in, James Dennison was driving the steamboat that the captives were put on because the mayors didn't want to get caught driving a steamboat full of Africans. And so James Dennison then married one of the Africans, and he and Cujo were neighbors and friends for the rest of their lives. So of course James Dennison knew 12 Mile Island, and he would have told Cujo. So I, I, I left the meeting, and I called the, uh, the head of marine sciences at the University of Southern Mississippi because they had a survey boat of the kind you would use to look for this. And they trained students for the oil industry to do remote sensing. So I called them, and it's typically about 10 grand a day to rent a boat with this equipment on it. And I called the guy up and I say, Monty, will you bring your boat over here and help me look for the Clotilda? And he says, well, what's your budget? And I say, I have absolutely no money. And he laughs and says, okay, we'll do it. And so they came. And this was one week after the archeologist said it wasn't the Clotilda. Uh, and so we went up there and we, we mowed the lawn. We went up and down this tract of river running transects. They took that data, which was fed into four laptops from these giant machines. They took that back to Mississippi for a week and they made us a chart of the river. And we went back a week later to dive the sites. We found 11 possible targets. Over the course of the day, we ruled them all out. And so at the end of the day, wet, cold, river's muddy, um, we're all packing up and I get my phone out and I'm looking at the chart on my phone. And I, I guess I was hoping a ship would jump out at me. And so the dive safety guy who's behind me looking over my shoulder says, what's that right there? And I said, I don't know, it looks like a shoe. 
And he says, not to me, that looks like a ship. Let's go there. So we call the lab and get the coordinates to the shoe, which they had overlooked because it, or had ignored because it was so close to the bank. So um, we go to the shoe. I dive in. It's, nobody else will get in there. And I'm going down, and I keep coming up with logs. And the guys are making fun of me, saying, oh, you found an ancient pile of firewood. You know? And so then I found something. I felt something on the bottom that was squared off and cut, hewn lumber. You can't see anything. The river is, you know, you literally couldn't see anything. So I tug on it, and it comes away in my hand. And this is it. This is the first piece of Clotilda to see the light of day in 160 years. Um, by my uh, left hand, you see this big nail. So this is a blacksmith nail. You can see the, the striations in the metal from bending and banging. So instantly, we know we've got something from the 1850s. And it's been burnt. Um, and so I called uh, the state and told them, hey, I think I found the Clotilda again. And um, there was a lot of skepticism. Uh, <laughs> this is Monty with, um, I just want to show you a picture of him for doing the survey for free. Um, and let's see, this, you're going to actually see the Clotilda come into frame in this shot. So that's the, the bow coming down at the top of the picture, the pointy thing. Um, and so you can see the sides of the ship very clearly. There's a log laying across it. Um, and so right in the center is, uh, right, right about here, that's the hold where the people were. Um, and it's full of mud, which means it's been preserved. Underwater, when you have six inches of sediment, there's no decay, but there's no rot because there's no oxygen. So um, we, we have a very good chance of being able to even get DNA evidence out of the ship. So it took a year, but the archaeologists finally confirmed that um, my ship was the Clotilla. They threw a huge party in Africa Town. This is part of the party. And then this guy came. And this was, uh, this is, he described himself to me as the Pope of Voodoo. He is the highest ranking Vodun priest on earth. Um, he's also, uh, his business card tells you he's the king of seas and oceans, and he is a lawyer and a labor negotiator. So he has a broad portfolio. Um, but he's a great guy. He's on my boat here up in the swamp. He did a very different ceremony um, from the ambassador. There was no gin, and when he saw the wild rice, he got very excited because they have wild rice, and he was tying knots in it, casting things. He put one of these necklaces on me and named me a son of the sea. And then he said, you should come to Benin and see the other side of the story. And you come stay, visit me in my palace. And so I went. Um, this is, I'm about to go through passport control. Now, the ambassador who came, Three days before he got to Mobile, you remember Donald Trump's S-hole country comments? Well, the ambassador of Benin, the guy that was on my boat, was standing outside the Oval Office waiting to go in to talk to Trump. He heard Trump say it, and that's how we learned about the comment. So he was very angry about this when he visited in Mobile. So I get to Benin. I'm at passport control. I get up to this guy. He looks at my passport. He says, Etats-Unis. I say, oui. And he says, Trump. And... So I just did this, and he says, Bienvenue à Benin. And so um, this is the view, this is my, the pool at the hotel, and this is the view over the side of the hotel. Cotonou is a city of 750,000 people, uh, teeming, exciting. It was so much fun. This is a guy's clothing stall. This is a gas station in Benin. I never saw an actual pump. The big bottles are for cars. The little ones are for motorcycles. This is a street scene in uh, Ouida, the, the, the old slave port. This is Bohikan, where several of the people are from. The girls in pink, that's a school uniform. It's better than most American school uniforms, isn't it? Um, this is the tree where the White House stood, where you paid for your captives. 
And this, you see these all over. These are tributes to all the slaving kings. Gizu, Glele, you'll see their names amongst them. Um, they're revered as religious figures uh, in the Vodun community there. Um, so this is the, um, this is the grandson, not great-grandson, this is the grandson of Glele, the man who sold the Clotilde captives. Um, and he's still there. When we went to his palace, you have to crawl in on your hands and knees and put your head on the floor in front of him, and then he tells you you can get up. So we did that, and then we all had to sit in a circle around him on the floor, and they brought out tumblers and a pitcher of water. Now, in Africa, you're never supposed to drink water that doesn't come out of a bottle you take the top off of. But here I was in the court of Dahomey, and I knew from my history that in, uh, in, in the Dahomey court, if you're served water, it's a sign that no treachery will befall you. So I didn't want to risk offending them, and so I drank the water, to no ill effect, and then we drank Johnny Walker Black out of the same tumblers and had a great time. Um, I, I will say King Glele was a really nice guy. Uh, you see statues like this all over. This is a Vodun statue. You notice the date is actually 2019, so this was you know, not an ancient statue. And then you see public art like this. This is the gate of no return. And look at the art. You see the people, they're bound, they're gagged. This is in a public park. This is public art there. Can you imagine seeing this in America? And it's because, as um, Dada Dagbo, who's the, the Vodun priest, said to me, I'm very proud of my country. We're addressing this problem. We're, we know what happened here, and we're confronting it. We're not hiding. Um, but this is all public art all over town. This statue is to represent all the lost souls who were sold. It's a faceless statue. It's to shame the Dahomans. And this is to represent the Dahomans for what they did. And then you see art like this. Um, this is, is, of course, uh, liberty, freedom. Um, so this, was the, this is also a descendant of King Glele. This is Mayor Glele, and he is, oops, he's the mayor of Abome. And I know we're done. This is my last little bit. This is the food, okay? This is fiery red pepper jelly. This is a blackened fish. When the African women were in Mobile selling, they would sell hot lunches at all the factories in town. We're talking late 1800s here. And they were famous for their stews. And people loved the stews and talked about them. So in Africa, the word for okra today, in, in Benin rather, the word for okra today is gumbo. The women were making gumbo. We always hear about all the things that came here in the bodies of the enslaved people. And um, the people on the Clotilda brought all those things. We hear from firsthand accounts, they brought music, they brought religion, they brought dance, they brought cooking. Um, and so you can see these, you know, like, like you know, I'm going to get me a mojo hand in the song. That is straight out of Vodun. That's what that is. Um, so I'm going to stop there because I've already gone over time. And uh, I am going to sell copies of uh, The Last Slave Ship up here. They're $30. Um, I can take money most ways. Cards are very easy. Um, and I Venmo, I can do that, all that kind of stuff, or cash. If y'all want to get a signed book, you're welcome to. But thank y'all. Oh, questions. I forgot. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, Ben, or excuse me, Captain Rains, I believe. You gave me permission oh, to say is, that. Yeah. We will have Q&A in just a second. Uh, just a couple announcements. Next week, we'll have Dudley Edmondson. Dudley Edmondson is a filmmaker, photographer, author, uh, motivational speaker, and advocate of nature. He set out to create a set of outdoor role models for the African-American community by writing his landmark book, Black and Brown Faces in American Wild Places. 
Uh, for Convo Lunch, we will be in AGH today. We are full up. If you didn't RSVP, I'm sorry, we are full up. Um, and as, as Ben mentioned, right away afterwards, we'll have a brief book sale, so please get ready for that. But now let's do Q&A. We'll start back here. We're going to make Noel work a little. <laughs> when did the African slave trade finally end to anywhere? Uh, 1885. And they, they were still delivering people to Brazil until 1885. Thank you. And actually, the first country uh, to abolish it was England, which they did in 1835, I think. Um, and one of the interesting things was they did it without a civil war. They paid slave owners the equivalent today of about $50 billion in compensation for the people they were losing, but they avoided a war like we had. So, uh. Hi, thanks for coming. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about any like public art movements or kind of what Mobile is now doing uh, with all this information. So we just had a museum open um, called the Heritage House that's in Africatown. It's dedicated to the Clotilda story. It actually has public art outside of it, um, some big archways that were made in Africa, uh, and other things like that. My primary effort is to get the ship dug up and put on display, and I have been working with groups trying to do that. Um, the state does not want to do that. The state wants to leave it in the what they call preserve in situ, which means let it sit and rot on the bottom of the river. So that's kind of the most active thing. Um, but we want to open a huge world-class museum telling this story because there's nowhere else they can tell it. You know, we have the people, we have the community they created. Um, with the ship, it will, there's, there's, there's nothing else like it. It is the only intact slave ship ever found. It's the only slave ship involved in the American trade ever found. Um, there's a piece of a slave ship in the Smithsonian in Washington, and it's about this big, and it's from a South African sh ship that sank in port in Brazil. And so, you know, that made it to the Smithsonian. Well, here we've got a whole ship, so. You got one up here? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm Sheriff Keita from Mali. And you know, a lot of the slaves were Mandinka people in the hinterland. If you go to Cuba, I mean, they still recognize that Mandingos were there. And in the U.S., the word mandingo uh, was used for a kind of slave uh, that had a reputation attached to it. I know popular culture took it in certain directions right. anyway. <laughs> so I just want to thank you for this fascinating work. I mean, this is scholarship that I dream of. <laughs> thank you for having done it. And again, you know, this is the kind of thing that should be taught, that should be made so public. But think of all the uncultured and dishonest politicians that are trying to, to silence this. Because they, want, they don't want the, slavery, the face of slavery to be seen. Right. And thank you for making this effort to bring it out. Uh, the Afro-Brazilians, that should be mentioned. In Women King, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there is an Afro-Brazilian in that film. It's almost like a metaphor for the role of the Afro-Brazilians who today you have uh, names in Benin and Togo and Ghana. Oh yeah, the D'Souzas, the Dalmedas, who were slaves, uh, who of course who had been biracial, who came back to Africa and continued the slave trade. You see, so it's, it's a complex uh, human story. So that's why so much attention should be directed to slavery. 
for me, I mean, it's a terrible sin. Anybody who participated in it, from A to Z, they are all criminals. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Okay. And to think that the whole country was built on this. The U.S. was built on this. And people don't want that to be said. It's, crime. it's a crime to hide that. <laughs> so anyway, let me stop here because when I get mad, I get mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the, the, yeah. <laughs> The uh, tree I showed you um, in the big square where the White House used to be is D'Souza Square. So, um, and, and the family there, um, there's a new museum being built and they say, we don't want our name associated with the slavery part. They built their own museum to the D'Souza that shows that he was a businessman as opposed to the world's largest slave dealer. So it's, we don't want our name associated with this dirty thing is what his descendants are saying. <laughs> Yes, he did father many, many kids with slaves. <laughs> you got another one? Hi, um, my question is, um, how do you go about um, speaking or presenting African and African-American people being someone who's not African? You know, I felt a little shy about that at first, uh, but then realized I had a part to play in this story. I'm a journalist, I'm a storyteller, um, you know, and I'm telling the story that I reported basically. And so um, I, I try and, and um, I try and stay on the right side of that line and, and uh, you know, honor and represent the story as best I can. And I know I'm telling a story that wouldn't otherwise be told. Um, and so, you know, I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing my, my best to, to honor the story of these people. But I was sensitive about that for sure. I hope I do a good job. So thank you again for, uh, for coming. So this is about sort of the, the, the Barracoon piece in, in Cujo, which I think is a fabulous book and, and everyone should, should absolutely read it. So, so Alice Walker sort of discovered sort of the story of Zora Neale Hurston and, and Cujo. Just want to talk about sort of the, um, the reconciliation between this book and, and, and Barracoon, um, where sort of he, Zora Hurston sort of picks it up and you're carrying it, um, and how it just was not very well received. Zora Hurston's version of Cujo was not received very well um, until Alice Walker published it, basically. Well, well, actually, you know, it languished in the archives at Howard University for um, 80 years. Um, it wasn't published because the publishers refused to use the dialect she created for Cujo. So in the introduction to my book, um, I actually start with, uh, I have to thank four women for preserving this story. And Zora Neale Hurston is one of them. Um, you know, what, what's fascinating about Zora is she was hired by a sociological group in New York to come to Mobile and interview Cujo, and so, and write an article for their publication. And so she writes this article, but she never interviewed Cujo. She just stole um, stuff from other articles, uh, particularly by the woman I was talking about, the Emma Roche, the, the funeral home person. And so the article was so well received, they then said, okay, we want you to go back and do a whole book. So this time she came and she interviewed him for three months and we got this incredible story. I don't actually mention in the book that she, you know, plagiarized and stuff because I feel like she, she righted the ship and, and preserved this incredible record. Um, 
And so, you know, then, then there were two more women uh, who wrote books, and they had read, both of them had read Barracoon in the archives at Howard. So they were leaning on Zora Neale Hurston's work. Um, and, and one of them, Sylvia and Jew, wrote a book called Dreams of Africa in Alabama. And it's an incredibly powerful book. It is, it is much, much, it's very dense. But she is, a, um, she, is um, she calls herself an Africanist, and she's French. So she speaks French like everybody in Benin. She went to Benin and using knowledge of African languages and things, she was able to track down to individual villages where the people on the Clotilda were from, which is a really stunning bit of scholarship. Um, so, you know, I'm standing on the work of all these people, and um, I, I did my best to, you know, give them the credit they're due because they did incredible work without the ship. Um, you know, the, the ship attracted people to my book, you know, because <laughs> we had found it. Um, so, you know, that's how scholarship works, though. You, you, you carry the torch a little bit further than the person before you, and you build off of what they built off of. And so that's why history is so important, because it's an additive process, and we're always learning more. And sometimes we're learning that things we had learned aren't true. Um, you know, I, I went to elementary school in the South, in, in fourth grade in Georgia. I remember being taught that uh, white people went to Africa and threw nets over black people and brought them back which is, of course is absurd. You know, these were warriors. These were, they, they, you know, the, the white folks didn't, didn't get off the boat and go chase anybody. They went to the market and paid money and left. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of history is always correcting itself and um, it's fun to be a part of that. Um, it's very gratifying. And on that, we need to conclude convocation. Thank you very, very much, Ben, for being here. And thank you all for being here as well. We'll see you next week.